Hey everybody, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. My name is Michael Levan, and today I am joined with Calvin Hendricks Parker, and he's the co-founder and CTO at Six Feet Up. Calvin, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad you're having me. I'm really excited to talk about Kubernetes and uh, and the developer experience. Uh, so you mentioned a co-founder of Six Feet Up, and Six Feet Up is actually a, a cloud Python and cloud consulting company. Uh, we really highlight and focus on um, AIML, big data, we do a lot of app dev, and all those things obviously involve developers. So I'm always excited to talk about developer topics. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, this is uh, this is definitely going to be an interesting conversation, I think, because I, I don't think I've ever had any, like, like, usually I'll have people on and we'll talk from an engineering perspective, you know, setting things up, breaking things, yada, yada. But we never really talk about uh, the the developer and the engineering experience, which we probably should talk about more, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have a, a unique perspective on that as I've sat on both sides of that equation. Like I've been a system man, you know, way back when, a system engineer way back when, and really the, the world is driving towards code, you know, infrastructure is code, all these things to help accelerate everyone's transformation into kind of a, either a cloud native, you know, way of working. And I think Kubernetes is actually an interesting advance there. Uh, and I, I will tell you, from I'll be fully transparent and honest, I've not been a huge proponent of Kubernetes from the beginning. Uh, it took some time, and I think they had to iron out a lot of the issues with it to really make it developer-friendly. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. You know, funny enough, I was actually just on a podcast earlier this morning on the Meyer Media podcast, and we were talking about, um, you know, like, what where where kubernetes is at right now in the ecosystem like is it production ready are people actually using it in production yada yada and we kind of talked about that where you know when kubernetes first came out it 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 was you know the, the same thing as any orchestrator nomad swarm mesos whatever you want to use or whatever you have used it has one purpose schedule my containers do this mm-hmm. for me so i don't have to and then kubernetes like kind of blew into this whole thing, I'll call it now, where it's way more than where it started. So, you know, my first question to you, because because you brought it up around, you know, not being uh, super into Kubernetes in the beginning. Do you think that it's better now or better, you know, back then when it first came out? Because for me, for example, it's like, I see both sides, you know, I feel like it's so complicated at this point that I could almost say, ah, I kind of liked it four or five years ago more but then on the flip side, I'm like, well, we didn't have service mesh and we didn't have GitOps and we didn't have all these things. So it's like, I feel like there's pros and cons on each side. Yeah. And I'll, I'll almost flip that around back at you is that I thought Kubernetes was overly complicated to start with because it didn't have a good developer story or so sort of tooling to aid in what we really care about, which is delivering code, delivering a, a container full of some value for the end customer. So I think that the latest you know, the, the state of the art right now is we've got a great set of tooling in the, in the ecosystem. Now, you have to be careful which ones you choose. Not all of them are, you know, continually maintained. Some of them were people's little passion projects here and there. But there are a few tools that are really standing out. And you mentioned GitOps, like Argo, you know, or Argo uh, CD and Flux CD are really amazing tools that are changing that equation for especially for us as developers, making it way more friendly for us to interoperate in this Kubernetes world. And other other tools such as well, if you were a developer in the early days and you were do, using like Docker Compose locally, it was nice, but it was slow. Now, I think that's what actually inhibited a lot of developers from 
adopting Kubernetes early on, at least for local development. And I, I think that has changed now because you've got tools like uh, Scaffold and a couple others that rapidly speed up the, the local development process so that local development and then deployment into like a sandbox or a staging or a production environment start looking a lot more similar. Uh, locally, I get to use all my great tools for debugging, all my tool chain for producing that code while still using the same, you know, maybe manifest and, and structure that will be deployed into the target environment. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I definitely agree with you there. I, uh, but, and I will echo what you said regarding the tools. Uh, you know, I, I always bring this up where there's over 1300 tools in the CNCF landscape. Yeah. Uh, you can't use them all. You're never going to try them all. They're all not going to be production ready. So it's like, ah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's difficult because again, you know, going, going back, you know, in the beginning, Kubernetes had one job. You know, I, I remember I just, I started using Kubernetes in 2016, 2017. I just, I kind of got mm -hmm. lucky to work at a startup that, wanted to just, you know, use the latest and greatest thing because uh, it was new and it was a small company and they could do that versus trying to migrate off of it. So I was deploying Kubernetes, you know, a year or two after it came out, after it was actually just in the wild for the first time. And I think about that now and, you know, I'll always remember just there was a massive amount of homegrown solutions that we, you know, we had to come up with, you know, to the point where, you know, one solution that I built out just because the tools weren't available for it yet, uh, it was Kubernetes combined with a bunch of Python scripts that I wrote combined with running everything via Ansible Tower. There it was, it was a, a big homegrown solution. And now we don't have to do those things because we have GitOps to take care of that for us. Um, you know, so pretty much what we were doing was we were trying to build a GitOps -like, like style system. And right. picture being a developer in that. Right. In that mix. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it worked, but then now I'm so grateful that I don't have to do that for my customers currently because, you know, outside of creating content and doing live training, I also have a lot of customers that I work with from a consulting perspective where I'm implementing Kubernetes in their environments. And I am so happy that I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, Cause not only would it take a lot more time, but I would probably have to charge a heck of a lot more and nobody would like that. So, you know, where we're at right now makes things way easier, but then, and I'm sure you hear this all the time as well, because you're, you're in the same space I am from a consulting perspective. I, I hear the same thing every day. This, you know, what tool do I use? How do I figure out which tool to use? Is GitOps the right approach? Is CICD a better approach? Which direction do I go in? There are so many tools in this ecosystem right now. I have no idea what to choose. And these are questions that I, that I just hear from clients literally every mm -hmm. single day. Yeah, and it's true. You have to you have to kind of go pick out, I hate to use the word best of breed, but there are at least active open source projects or even active commercial projects where you're going to get a lot of value and there's a great community and it's vibrant and there's lots going on. Uh, you don't want to... You, you would not want to send your developers into a world where they are less enabled or have less tooling and power than they had before. Like we want to always make sure we're optimizing and enhancing that experience of every step we get. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And, and that's kind of where the whole developer experience kind of comes into play. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's also, I think the flip side of it, when we're thinking about it from a platform engineering perspective, we're thinking about building developer tools for them to use these platforms better, right? Or, or more efficiently, mm -hmm. whatever you like to call it. Um, Cause that's the whole idea. Well, 
in my opinion, I know uh, titles are titles and everybody has their own opinion, but in my opinion, <laughs> uh, platform engineering has a specific purpose and it's to make the developers' lives easier. It is like literally the developers are your customer. You want to give the developers a button or a location to go to to do a thing. And once they click that button or do that thing, your code that you wrote, your platforms that you have on the background, those things are all spinning up, which ultimately makes the developer experience better. So it's 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 almost like we we should be thinking about Kubernetes at this point from a uh, what I believe to be a platform engineering perspective. I agree, and actually, we, we, we the size we're at, we don't have a platform engineering team specifically, but we do have a, a whole group of tech leads that are doing a lot of work in that area to maintain that. Um, either kind of base project or base set of tools that we deploy with every project we're doing for our customers. And, and what's nice is that the, because of Kubernetes, some of these tooling are actually converging on uh, a standard set of things. Like you know, for, like I mentioned, Scaffold already, or you know, using um, uh, just Kubernetes in general to be able to have you know, a Redis running locally and a Postgres running locally and all the the bits and pieces that would actually run in production, having those locally allows you to uh, suss out some edge cases before they ever reach the sandbox or testing environment. Uh, I think if you, some teams may have platform engineering and they're, they, they might be um, maybe doing too much uh, to isolate the developers from those, those various production and, and their sandbox environments. Mm -hmm. And I think they might be doing a disservice. I, I think that there's, there's bugs that can be found earlier in the process, uh, if the developers are fully enabled to run this platform. And that's another nice thing with the latest versions like, you know, Kubernetes and, you know, either Docker desktop. Uh, and this has been available for a while, but I think just less capable is running, you know, remote stacks in development on some either cloud provider or a desktop server underneath your desk somewhere where you're actually doing remote debugging and development, but it feels like you are live on your local laptop. You get the same benefits and speed of your IDE and your debugger and your tooling, but you get the computational horsepower of a cloud provider with you know multiple nodes behind it. Yeah, you know, some something that you said in there, obviously everything that you said was very good, but one thing that stood out to me was you mentioned the whole idea of like platform teams shouldn't uh, take away certain environments and put segregation and stuff like that for developers. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, because I, I've, I've done a lot of different stuff in my career. Like I started out in systems administration and, and virtualization and hardware management and stuff. And then like I moved into software development later on in my career. And then I met somewhere in the middle of where, you know, I'll call it an SRE because mm -hmm. that's what we called it. I mean, that, that, that's still what it's called, but you know, now there's all these other titles, but like when you, when you think about platform engineering, when you think about DevOps and stuff like that, like it, it just used to be SRE. Like that's what we were. We were SREs. Yeah. Um, and now there's all these different things. Right. Um, but when we're, when, when I used to build environments, I, I hated the conversations where we would bring up like, okay, so we don't give developers access to production okay, so we don't give them access to this and access to that and yada, yada. Like, I just, I never understood it because it, it always felt like gatekeeping to me. And with gatekeeping right. always comes arguments, um, harder problems to solve without the full team. And obviously, of course, egos get involved at that point as well. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I never understood it. You know, like I, when I think about platform engineering and SRE, I think about, I'm building internal tools 
to make developers lives easier mm -hmm. i'm giving them a button versus them having to deploy a bunch of yaml and a bunch of terraform and spin up environments and do auto scaling yada yada like i'm taking care of that for them in code they're just worried about hey i need something to come up so i can test my code can you give me a button for that so you know and and to me that's never supposed to be like yeah we'll give you a button for it and you can only touch this environment sorry you can't touch staging or uat or production or qa i don't know it just it it, it never resonated with me to, to put those gates on right i mean i think we really need to be here to empower those folks to to produce great great you know great code which really is the ultimate value like what they're they're producing mm -hmm. uh, and more and more of these systems, like especially if you're, it's not just you know monolith anymore. You may be dealing with a distributed, like um, you know mono mono or not, uh, you know a distributed system where you've got services running across lots of different pods and lots of different containers. You need to be able to simulate that, that whole stack easily, and that that power uh, is also nice. But you, I I think that this Kubernetes has enabled you now to, from the developers' experience through to the production experience make that look very, very similar, just at different scales. Like production may be running at a much larger CPU and computational scale than your local machine. But as a developer, I can debug a production issue very easily on my local machine because it looks a lot more like production. I have the exact same services running uh, from end to end. And now I can actually throw a debugger in there, you know, set a stop point and analyze the whole code and actually do it from the exact images running in production. So. I don't have as a as a system administrator or as a you know the persons who are doing the operations of production. There's no there's a lot less risk, and as a developer, I'm a lot more empowered. Uh, so I, I, they don't I don't have to have access to production. I don't want access to production because of that potential liability of of actually causing some kind of a an issue there. But I think the another issue or another benefit we've gotten with Kubernetes and like things like uh, GitOps is that ability to roll forward very quickly. Uh, you know, small incremental changes released very, very frequently are easy to roll forward on and fix if there's an, an issue or some kind of, uh, and actually those smaller changes means there's probably smaller surface area for failures. So those failures are going to be smaller, maybe less noticeable. It's easier to do, um, you know, canary releases or you know, AB, you know, releases where I can start detecting, you know, through orchestrate or through observation whether there are actual issues being introduced into the production environment and then they'll roll them back to previous container versions, which is kind of hard anyway, because of things like migrations are still the real world of data that's mm -hmm. behind the thing, behind the scenes. You know, if you have persistence, you have to worry about it. Uh, and you always have persistence in your application. So typically we're gonna be rolling forward, like fixing a quick issue, which is a quick patch to a smaller issue is a lot bigger than the big bang approach of a two week, two week release cycle <clears throat> where you've got thousands of lines of code, you know, changing at once. Uh, you can't roll forward on that very quickly or even roll back is, is probably hard too. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. It's, it's one of those things where Kubernetes gives us a lot out of the box, which is great. One of those things being the ability to roll back applications, the ability to update, the ability to, take, you know, the, the Argo CD controller, point mm -hmm. it to source control and say, look at this thing every two minutes. And if you see a change, go deploy. And it makes it much easier to get a fix out much faster, um, especially in dev and just staging in general, right? Like if you're thinking about dev environments, if you're thinking about staging environments, you you know, you break something you're like, oh, typo, whatever, you know, yeah. click, <laughs> boom, and you're, you're, you're kind of good to go and you're off to the races. Uh, I think where the 
Kubernetes ecosystem kind of fall short there in this sense is like from an infrastructure perspective, like upgrades and trying to roll back an upgrade to a cluster from like a, a Kubernetes versions is uh it's yeah, I don't I I I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> you know, upgrades have been made a little bit easier now with, with managed uh, Kubernetes services and stuff like that, but you know, if you got a bunch of cube ADM boxes and you got to roll back versions for whatever reason, it's uh, yeah, it's it's not a fun time at all. Um, so no. I'm glad developers still don't have to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. No. So so what you were saying before about testing on your your local environment, it is a good point, and I, I think that if you if you think about it from a single tenancy perspective, it is a beautiful thing to have your local environment, have the same same container images, have the ability to deploy the same Kubernetes manifest, have the ability to deploy the same stack, obviously in a smaller scale, because as you get into production, you have mm -hmm. more worker nodes and et cetera. But you have the ability to test that entire stack right on your local host. Now, what I'll ask you is, do you think that developers should be testing that with like Minikube or Docker desktop, or do you think that they should be testing that with like micro K8S? We've been experimenting with all of those. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, it, it kind of depends on the platform too that you're on. Like for example, our, our team is a mix of mostly Mac, uh, well, probably half, half Mac and Linux. Uh, and I think one or two people are on Windows, uh, but those who are on Linux, uh, some tools like Kind, for example, are a really great way to, to you know simulate the the nodes using Docker containers, so you actually get a very lightweight experience. There's no extra virtual machine uh, that you have to run, for example, with uh, Minikube uh, in the mix. And so on Linux, that's the way to go: is run just the native containers on the host OS to give you then the Kubernetes you know micro nodes uh, to run your application. If you're on a, a Mac. Especially with M1, it's probably still easy to use Docker Desktop and maybe their Kubernetes implementation. I've been now that we've got things like Scaffold, it might actually be worthwhile to really just run um, Minikube as well. Mm -hmm. um, we've also played with Microcates; uh, they've all got their pluses and minuses. But whatever gets you the kind of best performance uh, for your environment, you know, Linux is still really great. It's probably one of the better environments to be on because you're. You're already running a, a Linux kernel. You're already running on typically the architecture you're going to deploy to if you're running an Intel um, one. But when you start getting into Intel containers on you know, ARM Macs, uh, luckily ARM Macs are very very fast, and that's what I run. I'm mm -hmm. running a you know MacBook Pro M1 um, M1 Max, and uh, it, it feels it doesn't even break a sweat, uh, which <laughs> is really nice. And that's not the case. I mean, like I said, just about three years ago, four years ago. I wouldn't even try it. Uh, it was just too much overhead uh, running the the virtual machine and just the hardware limit hardware limitations. The fact that Docker, if you were bind mounting, for example, into um, a Docker Compose, the I/O that was happening there was just taking your machine to its knees. Uh, you were you were losing so much performance that it was actually impeding development. And so I think a lot of people were hesitant to switch completely into uh, container-first development on their local computers. Right. Yeah, I, I would say my my biggest gripe, and, and this is my fault, I should know better, uh, <laughs> but, you know, being uh, just, you know, on autopilot sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll build container images on my Mac. I have an M1 Mac as well. And I'll, you know, 
push it up into Docker Hub and I'll try to deploy it somewhere. And I'm like, oh, why isn't this working? And I'm like, oh, right, because I'm on an ARM device. So then I have to whip out my Windows laptop and redo it. And you know what I mean? So that's that. And that's, you know, that that's an architecture decision. And I can't complain about it because there's nothing anybody can do. But I'm still complaining about it anyways, because it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and we really embrace CI for that, like CI pipelines for building those images so that I can run locally with an image that I may have a Docker file where I've got some build args in that Docker file that gives me additional tooling when I'm working locally. And then when I commit the code and the CI pipeline runs in the production land, you know, it runs against whatever architectures I've defined for that CI pipeline. And it also doesn't build in my debug tools. So I, I really like to have a rich development environment locally, you know, having PyDevD available, I'm a Python developer, so I can do remote dev and actually attach my debugger, having, you know, some command line utilities, the things that are in the container itself so that I can shell into the container. I don't want any of those things present in production mm -hmm. uh, because they just risk, uh, it's a security, you know, vulnerability surface area that I don't want to have that liability. So the CI pipelines building these very bare, you know, multi-staged builds allows me to you know, have that same multi-stage build locally, but actually then incorporate my development tools with a with a build time flag saying, yeah, this is a devel instance. And now I've got, you know, Postgres command line tools in the same image with the application where I would not want those things in that production image. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned your consulting company, you you primarily focus on Kubernetes and Python. I, I'm I'm curious, just out of curiosity, what what kind of brought those two things together for you to focus on? You know, because I'm curious, like why it wasn't Kubernetes and Go, for example. <laughs> oh well, I have a long history with Python. Uh, okay. I've actually I started using Python in the year 2000. So for me, Python started with uh, version 1.5.2, um, the, the dark ages. It feels like for a lot of people, because I think most folks who you know Python's grown in huge popularity. But a lot of that growth happened as we moved to Python 3, and I don't think a lot of folks even ever touched Python 2. So that my history just goes way back in building you know, web applications, content management systems, things like that with Python. And I really wanted to build a company where I could really enjoy what I'm doing every day, and Python was like on my critical path. And so that's why I chose Python a long time ago, and luckily like its popularity caught up and surpassed my ever any expectation I ever had for what that would be like, because Python is just a great language for solving a multitude of problems. It's not a one trick pony. Uh, it really has great legs when it comes to solving you know, data problems or orchestration problems or building a web application. Um, it's just, it's, it's always nice to have that, that flexibility with Python. Yeah, it does a little bit of everything, absolutely. So mm -hmm. with your, uh, when, you're, when you're working on overall developer experience and your consultancy, are you building the developer-friendly tools for Kubernetes that you're managing with Python? Is that kind of how it works? Uh, maybe not building or assembling together. Like maybe we're composing together the best tools that we feel are right now at the time. Um, and actually we share those open source as well. So if you go to uh, github.com slash six feet up, you can see that there's a Django uh, starter template in there that uses cookie cutter. And that, that starter template is ever evolving as we evolve with those same tools. So that one actually now incorporates, you know, our Kubernetes best practices. It has, I believe, some Terraform best practices in there mm -hmm. that we use to get things bootstrapped. And, and that's really where we kind of hold together those best tools um, that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. So any new project starts off, 
it, it has all those things built into it. Mm-hmm. And one of my goals as a building on this developer experience is that you could, as a new hire or new developer in the organization, you could ship them a, a bare laptop. Uh, they take it out of the box and it would be amazing. And, a, and that's really our, our goal is that within an hour of them opening the laptop, putting their account on that machine, installing you know Docker and, and whatever your favorite IDE is, that you can pull the code and be productive in an hour. That's awesome. Yeah. So then in that case, what you're saying is Python is like the brain behind getting all of those best practice environments up and running or getting the best yeah. practices onto the environments. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You, you should be, you should be able to just, you know, get clone a repository from a project that you've been assigned to uh, and, and actually start contributing code. Uh, there shouldn't be a giant get started document that you have to work <laughs> your way through and you know, make sure you've got this version of Postgres and this version of Redis and this version of that and this version of that. Oh, and then maybe you actually might get the code running. Oh, and you're able to run the tests. You know, how do you get that 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 framework all installed and working? How do you get the drivers for you know database you know system installed and working? That should all be baked into you know the Docker images themselves and the scaffold should handle you know how you which services you have available, which specific versions, so that they actually match production. Uh, we've had issues before where even like you think something like Redis, which you know, nice key value store. We use it for caching inside of a lot of our applications. There's some innovations that happen there. And, uh, you know, at some point I had built uh, a virtual event platform. We use Redis on the backside for caching things like the schedule. And uh, uh, one of the new calls I I had incorporated into that code when we launched it onto Amazon, uh, ElastiCache was not there yet in that version. We were literally a minor version behind. It was the difference between like 6.0.7 and 6.0.8 or something like that. Uh, was a very minor revision that had a major feature introduced, which you know caused a lot of headache because they had to go re-implement it and change it up to match what production is going to have. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 the whole idea of not having to do anything manually. It it really is the whole idea of like what we were talking about before the idea around platform engineering. Yeah. Build and <laughs> build a tool for your developers to just click a button and boom, you're off to the races. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. W- one more question for you before we start wrapping up here, and I'm curious on your thoughts about this. There, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, please. There will always be a time that an engineer or a developer must run a line of code or a command, whatever you want to call it, uh, manually or in a CI CD pipeline or something like that. Like I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Okay. Here, here's one. Ar- Ar- Argo CD. So when you install Argo CD for the first time, yeah, you can pop that for in, into the Helm chart and do all that. And if you, when uh-huh. you're setting up applications, et cetera, you can point them to certain source control repos and you can do all of that with an out of the box developer experience. But then it comes down to something, for example, registering a new cluster. So you can yeah. use the command to register a new cluster, but you have to have the cluster name and you have to be logged into the terminal via Argo CD login. I think the command is, and then you have to put in the username and the password. So stuff like that, like registering a, cl- uh, registering a cluster, for example, is that something that's automatable, if that's a word, in the way that you're describing? Or is that like one of those one-off things where you'll just have to do it real quick on your on your local terminal just to get it done. No, that, that has to be automated, uh, yeah. and I think we have most of that today. Uh, if you look at technology, well, Terraform can build a lot of 
infrastructure and set up a lot of things, even do set up the CI pipelines. I think in the Kubernetes world, folks should really look at Crossplane. Uh, it, it solves a lot of those bootstrapping problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you literally like Helm install a Crossplane locally, and then you use that to build out your infrastructure into whatever cloud provider you you want to deploy your your Kubernetes cluster to. It can actually deploy infrastructure much in the way that Terraform can, but now you're doing it in a way that looks very familiar to the developers. You're using you know, YAML manifest as opposed to uh, HashiCorp configuration files. Uh, so if, if you want to kind of stay and play in something that feels familiar, there are absolutely people doing that today. Got it. Okay. So essentially what you're saying is if you want to, for example, not have to go through the, the and I know it's a short time, but you know, it, it does add up after a while. So if you don't want to go through the need to have to open up your terminal type, you know, Argo CD login, Argo CD register cluster, here's the cluster name. Okay, now I'm done. That was only 20 seconds. But imagine if I have 10 clusters, 20 clusters, or if I just don't want to have to do it manually, what you're right. saying is look into something like Crossplane. Yeah, and, and more than the time, I think, is the potential for human error. Any, right. any place where we can eliminate, where I can write uh, some kind of either YAML or some description of what I want built, I can now test it, and then I can always deploy it repeatedly. And I will never forget to deploy it because it's going to be part of an automated process as mm -hmm. opposed to someone who may maybe got a new project and someone forgot to put it in Argo and you know someone starts deploying it manually or I don't know what they're doing, but... It, you can eliminate some of those organizational issues by putting in those guardrails that these things just run and flow naturally toward deployment into the Kubernetes environment without human interaction. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right. Sounds good. So before we go ahead and we start wrapping up here, I would like to give you the opportunity to plug anything you like. Sure. Uh, we actually just wrapped up the Python web conference two weeks ago. It's a virtual conference, so we our fifth year. Uh, now, even though the live event has wrapped up, we still have some uh, post-event video-only tickets that are available if you really want to go check out about 70 awesome talks across cloud and data, uh, app dev, and culture. Uh, we had some tremendous keynote speakers. You can actually go to pythonwebconference.com and still register for a ticket because for the next 90 days or so, all that content will only be available on that platform. Uh, otherwise, if you want to wait and check out the videos once they release to YouTube, yeah, about three months, those will, those will all be up. Uh, also, would encourage folks to come check out our blog. Uh, if you go to sixfeetup.com slash blog, you can see a lot of the articles we're writing about. Uh, there's a couple of Kubernetes ones up there, but there's a lot of uh, Python best practices, a lot of uh, you know just our thoughts on the technology are up there. All right. And with that, thank you so much, Calvin. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much to everybody that's listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode.